Well, let's pray again. Father, even in the words of this hymn that we have sung, we, we recognize that we have been made citizens of the heavenly city, the Zion that you promised, the place where you would encounter and meet mankind, the place where you would be present in your creation and where even all creation would come to meet with you. And we know from the fulfillment that has come that that place is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is that banner to whom all the nations come. When you pledge to make Mount Zion the greatest of the mountains in the last days, such that all the nations would stream to it, that promise has become yes and amen in Jesus our Lord. And so, Father, I pray as we begin to consider this Davidic covenant that you would enable us to see it not only in terms of its historical relevance and what it meant to the people of Israel, even uh, in the emerging monarchy and, and this transformation of, of the covenant kingdom, but what it would ultimately mean for the world even as David himself recognized that the things you were promising spoke to the distant future, a time in which your dwelling place would fill the earth, a place, a time in which ultimately all things would be summed up in Christ such that our God would become all in all. So enable us to understand, lead us, open our hearts and minds, and Father, fill us with the glory of these things the glory that is yours in the face of Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, we saw last time that, that after David conquered Jerusalem, he brought up the ark to Jerusalem and uh, had named the city the city of David and brought up the ark to, in that way, enthrone Yahweh on Mount Zion. Remember, in Israel's understanding, uh, the Lord God of Israel was enthroned between the wings of the cherubim. And so as David has now settled into the city, and, and as we saw even in reading from Second Samuel, the Lord had given him rest. David had established the kingdom as it had been promised uh, to Abraham. And now he gets uh, the thought that it's time to build a permanent dwelling for the Lord. And he believes that Jerusalem should be that place. And it makes perfect sense. It wasn't just kind of an, an abstract, arbitrary idea that came into his head. If David had established his own throne in Jerusalem, David recognized that he was Yahweh's king, Yahweh's image son ruling on his behalf, and that his throne was actually the throne of Yahweh's kingdom. And so it, meant per it made perfect sense that if Jerusalem was to be the, the center of his kingdom, the site of his throne, then Yahweh himself needed to be installed there. He needed to have his own throne and dwelling there. And David had put the ark in, in a tent, a, another temporary structure, and now he is desirous of building a permanent dwelling in Jerusalem for the ark, for the God of Israel. And as I say in the notes, this even was uh, a reflection back on Moses' promise in Deuteronomy 12. This was before Israel even entered the land. 
and Moses had told the people as they were preparing to enter the land. He says, when you, this is chapter 12 of Deuteronomy, when you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you, there's a key thing. Remember how chapter 7 of 2 Samuel begins, the Lord had given David rest on every side. When he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security, then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, your covenant God shall choose for his name to dwell. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your contributions of your hand, all your choice votive offerings, which you will vow to the Lord. And out of that came the obligation again of the three pilgrim feasts, right? All Israelites were to go up to Jerusalem three times a year to meet, to encounter, to worship Yahweh there at the place of his dwelling. So God had already promised that when Israel settles in the land, when he grants them peace and security, that he will establish a permanent dwelling for himself. So David didn't just arbitrarily come up with this idea. He recognized his own intent as his desire to fulfill the Lord's intent, the Lord's desire for a fixed dwelling place. And as this covenant begins to unfold, that's the occasion for the covenant is David's desire to build a house for the Lord. And he goes to Nathan, the prophet, and he puts this desire in front of Nathan. And Nathan says, do all that's in your heart. Because Nathan understood that this was what God had promised God didn't promise where the place would be. David believed it was Jerusalem. But when this settled kingdom was established, then God said, I will tell you to establish my name in a place. And so Nathan says, do what's in your heart. This is according to the Lord's design. But then the Lord speaks to Nathan and says, tell David he's not the one to build my house. And we'll talk about why that is. But through that comes this covenant promise what we call the Davidic covenant. Nathan goes back to David and he says that your desire to build a house for Yahweh, Yahweh will not have you do that. But his plan is that he will build a house for you. Now, this isn't moving completely away from David's desire. The two become intertwined. David's longing to see Yahweh enthroned permanently in the context of rest and peace on Mount Zion, God says he doesn't set that completely aside. He's, he's, what he's ultimately saying is that the way in which that will happen is going to be through me building you a house. I will build you a house. So that's kind of the historical context for this. And even as it plays itself out in the scriptures, Uh, You see, again, that these themes that begin all the way back with Abraham are being carried forward. The promise of a kingdom, the promise of the land of Canaan, the promise of settledness, the promise of peace, the promise of rest from enemies, the promise of a permanent habitation where Yahweh will reign. Now we've seen even through his image son, through his king. We've seen the whole process of the emerging kingship. So David sought to fulfill Yahweh's intent and God's response came in the form of a covenant and promises attached to that. And through that covenant, 
and its promises, it was shown to David that the Lord's designs actually transcended David's own vision. It's interesting, I don't know if you noticed it in the reading, you flip back to it here in 2 Samuel 7, but it begins in chapter, in verse 1 by saying, the Lord had given him rest on every side, and then you look at, in verse 10, it says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Well, I thought God had already given him rest. But what the Lord is is getting at here is that what is present in David's own experience in David's own kingdom at that time looks to a time of rest and deliverance from enemies that will be ultimate that will be consummative that will be everlasting because we'll even see moving forward in chapter 8 that David continues to fight battles right and unrest and unsettledness and chaos and and disturbance are still very much a part of his kingdom and will continue so all the way up to the point where both where the kingdom is divided and ultimately both kingdoms go into exile so ultimate rest and peace have not come but God is saying when I do this work when when what I'm promising you actually is brought to full fruition it will be in a context of peace and freedom from disturbance that will never be undone. So what David is experiencing in his own kingdom is a kind of picture of what will come. And even when Solomon goes on to build the temple, his own name, as I mentioned before, comes from the Hebrew word shalom for peace. And we'll talk about this more. But the reason David is not permitted to build the house is because that house needs to be built in the context of a settled peace that is not yet there in the way that God intends. Solomon is the one who will preside over David's kingdom in a time of peace. David was a man of war. David gained the kingdom through warfare. Solomon presides over the kingdom and its glory in a time of peace. Therefore, it's suited for him to be the one who will build the house. Because of the connection with God's house being built, the place where he would put his name being built in the context of a true and a notable peace and rest. So that theme of peace and rest that's established all the way back even with, at Deuteronomy 12 becomes a key aspect of this covenant and its promise. So the Lord's covenant with David revolt, revealed that the true fulfillment of his intent for a permanent sanctuary would come in connection with a house that he would build for David. And there's, there's this plane on the idea of house here. David, when he wants to build a house for Yahweh, he wants to build a sanctuary. God says, I will build a house for you. He's not saying, I'm going to have a, a physical dwelling place built for you. He's talking about primarily a dynastic house, a dynasty. And a royal dynasty that will preside over a kingdom. So it's a house marked by dynasty and dominion. Rulers or kingly, kingly uh, figures ruling a kingdom, a dominion. God's going to build a house and a, a, for David in that he's going to establish a regal 
line, a, a regal kingship and a throne and a kingdom, an everlasting one. Not a physical dwelling, but a royal dynasty associated with a chosen descendant. So Moses' words to Israel regarding Yahweh's dwelling, which Second Samuel wants you to see this echo of Deuteronomy 12. But what we see in Second Samuel is that what God was actually promising all the way back through Moses in Deuteronomy 12 that would really find its fulfillment beyond the Israelite theocracy. Even in David's own kingship and kingdom, it would find its fulfillment in an enduring house that would be built by one of David's sons. So the writer, through this revelation of the covenant, the writer of 2 Samuel has bound together three crucial things, at least three crucial things, regarding God's own kingdom and his design for his house, his dwelling place in the midst of his kingdom, as these things are ultimately, again, working towards what? God restoring sacred space. We began in chapter 1 of Genesis, right? The fall undid this thing of sacred space. The way in which God is present in and relates to and administers his own lordship in his creation. What's depicted in Genesis 1 and 2 was dismantled. It was fractured by the fall. Testified in the curse on the ground, the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden, right? So the rest of the Old Testament is building the case for how Yahweh will restore sacred space, how he will restore his dwelling, how he will restore his presence and his relationship with the creation that has man at the center. That's what I'm getting at here. And these three things that we see through the Davidic covenant is the, the first is that this key feature of a fixed enduring sanctuary where the sons of the kingdom will meet and interact with their father Lord, that is to become a, a settled reality. For up to this point, there hasn't been such a thing. The presence of God has moved around. And during the, the reign of Saul, really God's presence in Israel was largely absent. The ark doesn't figure into Saul's reign at all. David goes and gets the ark and brings it up to Jerusalem. So he's, in a sense, bringing Yahweh back to his people. But the Davidic covenant highlights this idea of a fixed dwelling place where God will meet with and interact with and will be worshipped by the sons of the kingdom. Ultimately, the sense in which uh, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, becomes the center of the earth. And that idea is picked up by the prophets, as I said, even in my prayer, where God says, ultimately, Mount Zion will become the center of the earth, the greatest of all the mountains. All the nations will stream to it. And then in chapter 11 of Isaiah, that is tied to the Messiah himself the root and stem of Jesse, the branch of David. All the nations will rally to him. So a fixed, enduring sanctuary, and that marks the emergence of this Zion theology that becomes key in the balance of the scriptures, even through to the very end of, of the book of Revelation, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven the consummation of Mount Zion, the consummation of Zion as the dwelling place of God, Zion as the covenant uh, mother, 
wife that bears children for Yahweh. Zion as epitomizing the relationship between God and his people, God and the world. The second thing then is that that theme of an enduring sanctuary has a near-term fulfillment in the Jerusalem temple. As you keep on reading through 2 Samuel and into Kings, you see that David understood, even though he knew this pertained uh, to the distant future, he saw Solomon, his son, as the first referent. David said to Solomon, the Lord chose you to build this house, and he cites this covenant. So there is to be a near-term fulfillment in the Jerusalem temple, as David was intending. That was David's own intent. And then the third thing is, again, the ultimate fulfillment, which pertains to David's house, his dynasty, his dominion, tied to this royal seed through whom and in whom this house will be constructed. Another thing that's notable about this is that if David is a key figure in the unfolding uh, salvation history, David really marks the turning point in that he becomes the first and the preeminent prototypical king. In the movement of the salvation history and the development of the Israelite theocracy, the kingship becomes centered in David. But this Davidic covenant then becomes the centerpiece of David's own life and reign. It marks the point of transition between the two segments, the rise of David's reign and the decline of David's reign. And when you think about this covenant, David's rise and and glory and the establishing of the kingdom reaches its high point in this covenant, which promises the glory, the perpetuity, the strength of David's throne and kingdom. And immediately after this in the text, you begin to see threats to and ultimately the decline and God's own judgment against that throne and kingdom, which sets up this tension. How can God's covenant with David stand if David's kingdom is going away? So this covenant looks backward to the revelation of God's kingdom that came in the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in the conclusion. But also it looks forward to this ultimate realization of God's promised kingdom that is to come in a future son of David. A son which itself in the covenant indicates that David's own reign is not to be ultimate. So from the issuing of the Davidic covenant, the perpetuity of David's house and kingdom, that was the focal point of God's ongoing promise concerning his kingdom. From this point forward, everything that God is promising in and through Israel is bound up in David in this covenant. So the hope of the kingdom now lays in Yahweh's enduring faithfulness to David. In that sense, the Davidic covenant takes everything prior to it up inside of itself. It sits within the covenant at Sinai, the Israelite covenant, which itself was the way in which the Abrahamic covenant was to work itself out in God's purposes. But now everything is localized in terms of the Davidic covenant. So you see even in Isaiah that that the hope is that God will hold on to his faithful mercies to David. God will be faithful to David. And as you read through the Psalms, that's what you see coming out. And we'll read one of those when we're finished. 
So in terms of the components of the covenant itself, and we've hinted at some of that, the central feature was the Lord's pledge to build a house for David. This springs out of David's desire to build a house for the Lord. God says, no, I'm going to build a house for you. And again, this house implicates David's dynasty. This is his royal line of descent and the kingdom associated with that line of kings, a kingly line and a kingdom. So God is promising to David a son in whom his own reign would continue after his death. And like David, this seed, this royal son, would be Yahweh's beloved son. And the Lord says that when or if he needs to be chastened, and this is really kind of a plural statement, these sons, these royal sons to come from you, this dynasty, if they need to be chastened, I will chasten them with the rod of men, but I will not take my chesed from them as I did with Saul. And recall again that Hebrew idea of chesed means covenant relational faithfulness, loving kindness. But not just in that God is a loving God and he's kind and, and so he'll be kind to these sons. But it's the idea of relational commitment. The covenant established a relationship, the covenant with Israel. And God's loving kindness is his committed relational um, commitment to that in love the bond of love that he has with his people through covenant. And he says, I will not remove that from David's sons as I did with Saul's. There's a perpetuity here. Remember, Saul was excised. But he also pledged to establish this son's throne and kingdom forever. If it was just the pledging of a royal line of descent, it could be the perpetuity of David's own kingdom. But now he's promising a kingdom that will endure forever. And we don't yet know it, but it's going to be very evident that David's kingdom, in terms of its historical form, was going to go away. So this covenant promise is of a perpetual, unending kingdom and throne. And eventually the house and the throne of David will be in the dirt. They will be gone. But at the prophets, the echo of the prophets is God will be faithful. God will be faithful. David's house and throne and kingdom are gone, but God will be faithful. He pledged perpetuity to David's house and throne and kingdom. They must be restored. That becomes a huge prophetic theme. So the Lord pledged to build David's house, but at the same time, David's own longing would not go unsatisfied this son promised in the covenant would build a house for the God of Israel and that too is layered there is a first referent in that pertaining to Solomon it pertained to Solomon in the Jerusalem temple I won't read this now but if you go back and you read first chronicles 28 this is where David talks about he tells his son Solomon that God ordained you to build this temple I wanted to build a house for Yahweh he said no your son will build the house you are that son so this does have a first level fulfillment in Solomon, the son of David, the regal son of David, who builds the Lord's house in Jerusalem. 
But at the same time, David understood and he even says in his prayer after Nathan brings him this covenant promise from God, David in his prayer acknowledges that this pledge looks to the distant future. Remember that? If you look again back in verses 18 and 19, as David prays here, he says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this, what you have accomplished, even that, the glory of it, is not significant in your eyes. You have even greater things for me, is what he's saying. O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant, him, concerning the distant future. This is your way with men, O Lord God. So he's established his kingdom and the glory of David's kingdom. And yet he says, you have even more for me. This pertains to, he says, the distant future. So it looked to a regal son beyond Solomon. And I put this citation from Acts in here because remember at Pentecost when Peter is speaking to the multitude down there who are gathered and he's testifying to the resurrection of the Messiah and he quotes from the psalm where David says you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or allow your holy one to undergo decay and Peter says David's grave is with us to this day David died his grave is with us to this day so what what is that well David being a prophet And knowing that the Lord had promised to sit one of his descendants on his throne, looked into the future and spoke of the Christ, the Messiah. The son promised to him in the covenant that he would not abandon him to the grave or allow him to undergo decay. And this Messiah, this son of David, as God even promised in his covenant to David, God has raised him from the dead to which we are all witnesses. That's how Peter preaches at Pentecost So the covenant looked beyond Solomon. It had a first referent in Solomon, but it looked beyond him. And at least the suggestion is that perhaps it's looking beyond even the sanctuary that Solomon would build. And the truth is very soon it will become evident that it is looking beyond the sanctuary that Solomon would build. The house that God promises that this son will build is something more than the temple in Jerusalem. And then also, thirdly, Yahweh's promise to permanently establish David's house, throne, and kingdom in the context of unending, perpetual, complete peace and rest, that promise was set within his designs for his own house and kingdom. So the Davidic covenant commingled David's reign and kingdom with the Lord's reign and kingdom. And we know, I mean, already that God was executing his own kingship, administering his own rule through David. There was a commingling in the sense that David's rule was Yahweh's rule. David's throne was Yahweh's throne. But but the way in which the covenant binds them together is more significant than simply that. The Lord would establish his kingdom, his own kingdom, and see his own house built by this process of establishing David's house. And that's what I said earlier. God doesn't say, forget about your plan to build me a house. God says, I will build you a house. And the implication is through that process of me building your house, 
my house will be built. By establishing David's house throne and kingdom in a descendant covenanted to him, the Lord would build his own house and kingdom. But there was a crucial point of discontinuity as it pertained to, again, David's kingdom, Solomon, all of that. Solomon was the one who built the house and then Solomon coming to the throne, the text even says he sat on Yahweh's throne in Jerusalem. In a sense, Solomon established Yahweh's throne in that way by sitting on that throne in Jerusalem. His rule and kingdom were Yahweh's rule and kingdom. And yet Solomon's kingdom, which was the extension of David's kingdom, Solomon's kingdom was deeply unsettled and destined to failure and dissolution. Remember again what God is promising is a perpetual kingdom for David in the context of perpetual peace, perpetual rest. Solomon's kingdom was not marked by that. In fact, it was he began the process that caused the fracturing of the kingdom. God had already, in a sense, introduced the sword into David's kingdom because of David's sin, which we're going to see. But that continued to flesh it out through Solomon's reign. The Lord held the kingdom together for the sake of Solomon building the house in Jerusalem. But then it came apart in Solomon's son, Rehoboam. But Solomon himself was an unfaithful king. He took hundreds of wives and concubines who led him into idolatry so that he began to worship the gods of the nations around him. And that caused God to rise up even against Solomon. So this unsettledness, this lack of true peace and rest continues to mark David's kingdom all the way up to the very end when he's left with only Judah and Benjamin and finally they're destroyed and go into captivity So what the scriptures want you to see is that the hope continues to be projected into the future. One day, one day, one day, this rest and peace will come. This crucial discontinuity. So the promise of perpetuity set alongside the decline and demise of David's kingdom held out the sure hope of a future restoration of David's house and kingdom in another son, a son in whom all of Yahweh's promises would be yes and amen. And think again about Isaiah 9. There will be no more gloom for her who sat in darkness, right? Galilee of the Gentiles, a light will shine upon you. A son will be born to us, a child will be given to us, and the government will sit on his shoulders on the throne of his father David. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this work. Darkness will be overcome by light. And if you read even in Amos 9, there's the promise that God's going to arise and restore David's fallen tent, David's fallen tabernacle. And when he does, then God's kingdom will be profuse and bear abundantly. It's the language of Eden, if you read in Amos 9. And it will see the ingathering of the nations. That's what they cite at the Jerusalem Council in relation to the Gentiles coming in. So all of this is playing itself out in David's own kingdom. The promise of the covenant does have a kind of fulfillment in David's own lifetime and certainly through the life of his son. Um, But yet it still isn't there. And once everything is gone away and the temple is gone and Jerusalem is gone and David's kingdom's in the dust, 
uh, and his line has been cut off, yet this promise of God's sure steadfastness, his loving kindness towards David, stands. Somehow God will raise up David's fallen tabernacle. That's how this messianic um, hope and expectation of Israel continues to carry through. So when we get to the Gospels and we see people referring to Jesus as the son of David, that's what they're getting at. Could this be the son of David? Because it's the son of David in whom all things are going to be restored. So this promise of a Davidic seed embraces both sides of the covenant in and through that descendant the lord would build david's house but that seed would also then build yahweh's house he would build and secure the perpetuity of david's house throne and kingdom but in so doing would also secure for yahweh a royal dynasty of image sons ruling his enduring kingdom if you look at jeremiah 32 But this comes after God's promise of a new covenant, a renewal of the covenant. Jeremiah 33, rather. God is promising the renewal of the covenant, the restoration, the reunification of the fractured covenant houses. And it says in verse, this is Jeremiah 33, beginning at verse 14. Now, Jeremiah is writing at the time where The northern kingdom is long since gone. They're right on the verge of the destruction of David's house and throne and kingdom. Jeremiah will live through that. He'll actually be taken to Egypt after Judah's destroyed. But the promise of a renewed covenant, the new covenant promise of Jeremiah 31, this comes after that. Verse 14, behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be delivered and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she, Jerusalem, shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The city will carry that name, the dwelling of God, Zion. For thus says Yahweh, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. This is echoing the covenant promise. It will be realized, even though David's house and kingdom are about to go away. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to burn burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. The promise of a perpetual priesthood and a perpetual kingship. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day, my covenant for the night. In other words, the structure and the, the um, so- solidarity of the natural order. If you can cause day and night to not continue and the seasons to not continue, then in the same way, my covenant can also be broken with David, my servant, that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. The promise is that through this son of David, through whom Zion will be restored and the kingdom will be restored, the outcome will be a perpetual abundance of regal and priestly sons. 
here associated with the Levites because they were the priestly class in Israel. But think again about the idea of David fulfilling the regal and priestly function and how the king to come from him will also function in a regal and a priestly way. And the sons and the daughters that will come forth through that line, that regal line, will be priests and kings to our God, right? Revelation chapter 5. These themes keep building and they keep carrying forward. So the Davidic covenant is actually vital to our understanding of how the salvation history progresses from this point and, and why the promises are uh, in the future beyond this are spoken in the way they are. Why Israel's hope is bound up in David. So just to summarize then, the Davidic covenant, an important aspect of, the, of this is that it's entirely unilateral. It's God's covenant with David, and covenants are relational arrangements. But note that it doesn't call on David to do anything. God is simply stating what he's going to do. He doesn't tell David to do anything. But all of these promises of God are set within his own purposes in and for the world. As I mentioned earlier, the Davidic covenant is set within the Sinai covenant, the Israelite covenant. And the Israelite covenant is simply the way in which God was carrying forward and ratifying with Abraham's descendants the covenant promises he had made to Abraham. And why is that important? Well, too often we tend to just set all these covenants alongside each other. There's, there's this covenant. There's the Noahic covenant. There's the Abrahamic. There's the Sinai covenant. There's the Davidic covenant. There's the Levitical covenant. There's the new covenant. Oh, they're all separate things. No, this is the way in which God is building. These things are nested within each other and build towards one another. And I think it's one, without going down this path, I think it's one of the lamentable ways in which uh, Reformed theology has treated the idea of covenant is that they've tended to, in a sense, just pile all of the actual biblical covenants together under this heading called the covenant of grace. And so what they're really focused on are these three theological constructs, a covenant of redemption, a covenant of works, supposedly in Eden, and then a covenant of grace, which all these things are just kind of piled into. And so the proper relationship between them doesn't tend to often be dealt with or thought about. But the Davidic covenant is advancing the Abrahamic promise, which was ratified to Israel at Sinai. That's the way these things are moving forward. So the Davidic covenant then gathers into itself all that God had revealed and covenanted to that point in the salvation history. So the Davidic covenant then makes David the new focal point of God's pledge of a human seed. A seed promised to Eve. A seed tied up, bound bound up in Shem. A seed promised to Abraham. Then Judah, right? Now it's localized in David a regal seed in that sense. David and his reign now become the focal point in the revelation of this person who is to come, this seed who is to come, such that David finds his own destiny, his own significance in God's purposes in this son promised in the covenant. 
from this point forward, you'll see on occasion the prophets will speak of this coming one as David. God will raise up David to shepherd his people. If you look at Hosea 1 through 3, the unfaithfulness of Israel, they're being sent away. They've used what God has given them to chase their, their, uh, chase their other lovers, their gods, their other defenders. They've used what God has given them to woo other lovers. They've become a harlot. And yet God says, I'll woo you. I'll bring you back. I'll restore you. I'll make a covenant on your behalf. And then they will be gathered to David, their prince. Well, David's long since dead when this is said. But it's because David's ultimacy, the significance of David is realized in this son. He has his own destiny in this one who is to come. So the covenant pledge an everlasting house for David, not a structure, but a royal dynasty, throne, and kingdom that would endure forever in the context of an ending peace and rest. That's what the Davidic covenant is all about. And the Lord was going to build that house in connection with a regal son from David's line, a son who in turn would also fulfill David's desire to build Yahweh a house, but not in the way David expected not in the way David expected. Solomon was the first referent, but not the ultimate one. He built the temple, but the temple would not endure. It wasn't an enduring house. Even as Solomon's own regal line would be severed, David's line would be severed at Jehoiakim, right? Which puts this whole thing into an, a seemingly impossible quandary. If God has promised the perpetuity of David's royal line, and now David's royal line is severed at Jehoiakim, and he says, never again will a son from that line sit on the throne of Israel. How, how can these two things work together? Well, we'll see how they can work together. But God has set up a seeming impossibility, just as he did with Abraham. All of my purposes, all of my integrity, all of my faithfulness, everything that I'm vouching to you, Abraham, is in this son, Isaac, the son of the promise. Now sacrifice him, kill him as an act of worship. How can those things fit together? How can God sever David's line and promise the perpetuity of David's line? But that's what's coming. And even Solomon's own house was troubled from the beginning, headed towards disillusion before it even began, because God had already sent the sword against David's house before Solomon even took the throne. So the text wants you to see all of these points of tension and calamity, and they carry the promise forward, but they also set up circumstances in which the people of Israel had to trust their God in spite of what they saw, in spite of what they were experiencing. The ultimate referent was a son in whom Yahweh would himself establish David's regal dynasty and dominion forever. The Lord intimately associated himself with that seed, designating him his son, which reflected not this idea of, oh, okay, this is divinity. This is going to be, you know, um, the second person of the Trinity. It's not that. This person would be his son, reflecting both Israel's covenant sonship, but specifically and, and more importantly, preeminently, that the king within Israel was his son, his image son, who administers his reign in his name. 
but there's an intimacy. God says he will, these, these kings will be sons to me and preeminently this one. And later the prophets who will emerge, the writing prophets, will connect this son of David even with Yahweh's personal return to restore his kingdom. When the Lord arises and returns to Zion, it will be in connection with the coming of the branch of David. But what the prophets don't do, they can't see, is exactly how that relationship will play out. How is it that Yahweh himself will return to Zion in connection with this messianic figure? And as I say, that dynamic remained veiled until the angel's announcement to Mary. How can this be? A son will be born to you. How can this be when I am a virgin? The spirit of the Lord will come upon you. And so the holy seed within you would be called the son of God. This one who would come would build the Lord's house after establishing peace and rest. Not through military triumph, but by vanquishing the curse. By his own self-giving sacrificial love. And remember the placard over Jesus' head. This is the king of the Jews. This is the son of David. This is the one who will establish peace and rest. And when he has established that rest, established the kingdom, then he will begin to build the Lord's house upon himself. And this is the way the New Testament speaks of us, right? The dwelling of God in the spirit. Christ, the cornerstone, is building his house upon himself. You see how all of this is building, but the Davidic covenant is the primary definition of how it is, what it is God's going to do, how this promise to Abraham of a kingdom is ultimately going to be fleshed out. And particularly the regal and the priestly role of this particular seed. And we'll look at that more next time as we kind of move forward with this. Um, Well, let me then close in prayer and then we'll... We'll prepare for the table with um, another reading and then a, a song. Okay, let's pray. Father, I know there's a lot here. I know there's a lot to chew on, but it's the intricacy and um, the magnitude of these things is overwhelming if we stop to think about it. It's like a three-dimensional fabric that has countless threads woven through it, each thread adding something to the tapestry and and yet finding its own significance in the completed tapestry, the completed work. And I pray that you would help each one here to think of the scriptures in this way, to see these themes and these threads woven into the fabric of your purpose, as they reveal your intent for the world that ultimately was to become yes and amen in Jesus our Lord. If all of these countless strands are weaving a three-dimensional fabric, Christ himself embodies that fabric. And it's in him that we see all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's in him we see all the promises of the creator God as being yes and amen, the way in which they're true the extent to which they're true, what it means that they are true, 
what it means for us to be true as your people, what it means for the creation to find its own place in your purposes in relation to him, the summing up of everything in him. Father, I pray that you would cause the glory that is in Christ our Lord, the glory in which we see your own glory, to ever increase in our hearts and in our minds. May we never get bored with this story. May we never get tired of it. May we always be zealous to continue to grow in our understanding of it. May we be those who don't just look at the the fabric, the tapestry that you've woven at a distance in a casual glance, but those who are concerned to scrutinize it intimately, to know it well. That we would know the one whose likeness we share. By your spirit, you are teaching us the Messiah, not about him, but to know him by the spirit. And knowing these things is key to knowing him in truth. So help us with these things. And Father, as we even prepare to celebrate the table, I pray that it would be with this glory in mind, this sense of what it is that you have done, the magnitude, the richness, the comprehensiveness of this triumph in Jesus our Lord. You are indeed building your house in the triumph of the Messiah, in his kingship, through the peace and the rest that he has attained, an everlasting, a true, a comprehensive peace and rest. We ask these things that he would be glorified in us. Amen.